I think I might have shared this with you before, but I'm going to share it again because it has, comes to bear upon this particular um, section of chapters because in these chapters, David leaves home and he comes, comes back home. It's a kind of an exile. And I bet most of you in here can probably name some place you call home. It might be Vacaville. It might be Fairfield. Um, it might be in somewhere in the Midwest, the East Coast, and your heart longs to go back there. I know I'm a, I'm a native Northern California boy, and um, everywhere I've been, Virginia, even traveling outside the United States, living in Chicago for a while with my wife for four years, um, it was, uh, for me, um, uh, a time in which my heart longed to go um, back home. And I can still remember after our exile in Illinois, I call it an exile, um, it is a time that the Lord used in our lives. But, you know, for those of you who like the Midwest, I'm sorry, you can, you can have your Midwest. It's flat as a pancake. It is sweat box in the summertime. I know I suffered heat exhaustion as a result of it. And then it's an ice block in the wintertime. And, and you can't imagine how much excitement there was on, on my wife and I's part, who also is from the West Coast, um, to hear that we were coming back here to this mysterious place called Parkway Community Church. And, and uh, my wife did the great thing, and that is that she flew, and um, I drove this underpower uh, moving truck, budget moving truck. Um, it probably, we topped out at 10 miles an hour going up the Rocky Mountains and topped out floored at a 7% grade coming down the Rocky Mountains at about 65. <laughs> Everything rattling, and it's just it wouldn't go any faster than that. And, and I, still, I still hold on to this moment. Again, I think I've shared this before of, of uh, driving through Nevada, and, and I just see the Sierra Mountains rising up in the west. And I just kept thinking, God, this is like Dorothy in the land of Oz. You know, there's no place like home. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. Without the slippers, though. And, uh, and I was just crossing that. I just felt like, man, I'm home. We're home. There's this excitement. It's like this idea of home is so rich to us. Um, it is such a rich concept, which most of the time is a great thing, a good thing. And there's a combination of this is where I belong, this is where my heart longs to be, this is where my family is, this is where my history is, this is where my memories are, this is where um, I love the people, I love the place. It's just home, you know. And the Bible, is, a, in one sense, is a story about uh, God bringing us home. One could look at the whole Bible as a story of God taking sinners and bringing us home. But there have been times in, in the history of the Bible where... Um, God's people have been displaced from home um, as a result of their sin or discipline. And, and the people of Israel were like that. They were, because of their sin, they were sent into exile, forced to leave home. And here in these chapters, in First, uh, Second Samuel chapter 15 through 20, is David being um, cast out from his home and his return. Um, and I think it is an act of the Lord's discipline in his life. Um, but not an act of discipline that is, um, that is a punishment or a, or a wrath, but something that is to teach David something and to teach us something. So I want to pick up where we left off last time, and I believe we will see, on the one hand, this continuing unfolding of, of uh, the consequences, the exponential consequences of David's sin, on the one hand, but also you see the hand of God move in ways in this chapter that are, I think, bring hope and encouragement to us um, as believers. So if you've been following along, can catch you up. David's sin, committed adultery, committed murder. He was confronted. He repented. That's chapter 11 and 12. In chapter 13, he begins to reap the consequences of his actions, and that is we see division, or we saw division in his family. One of his sons raped one of his daughters and then was subsequently killed by another one of his sons. So by the time you end chapter 14, you have a dead son, a desolate daughter, and a murderer. 
um, who is banished for a short time, but then who comes back and David embraces him with a kiss, and this son by the name of Absalom is restored. But he's restored without, in my thinking, justice. And that's where chapter 15 picks up. Absalom, the crown prince, having returned. And what we find in the opening verses of chapter 15 is that Absalom, kind of like a bad apple, you know, he comes into Jerusalem, capital city, where he starts to poison um, the heads of state and the men of Jerusalem and the men of Israel. And he does so through show and through subversion. I mean, the text tells us that he got himself a chariot probably a royal chariot. I like to think maybe he had spinners on the wheels, you know. And um, he had 50 men, 50 men that would run in front of him everywhere he went. There's no reason for 50 men to run in front of a chariot other than just to show off. And it's, this, it's this kind of this uh, the peacock showing off his colors and uh, driving around, or we might say cruising around Jerusalem, you know, showing off 50 men going wherever he, he's going. And we're also told, in addition to this show, um, that, that he would wake up really early in the morning before other people would, and that he would go in the way um, to, the, to the palace. In other words, people from Israel who wanted to come and have a legal dispute resolved would have to go to the palace. And he would cut them off, Absalom would cut them off, and he would say things like this. And you can see he, at this point, is building a conspiracy against his father by the show but also by what he says. He says, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated by the king, a.k.a. my father, to hear you. This is this kind of underhanded way of saying, my my dad's fallen down on the job. And this whole justice thing, um, he's not on his game. And I wish there were somebody, but he hasn't appointed anybody. So you can see kind of subtly he's throwing his dad under the bus. And then he goes on to say, oh, that I were judge in the land. Well, then I would bring justice. Now, you remember earlier in chapter 13 and 14, David did fail to execute justice. And perhaps, just perhaps, Absalom Absalom thought, you know, I am a man who will bring justice back to this country. You can hear the political speech happening. And that's kind of what he's doing. So he's got the show. He's got the subversion. And in addition to that, it says that as he would, you know, be down there on on the grounds around the palace, he would touch people who would come, like just hold them, and then he'd greet them with the kiss. This is his way of saying, I'm one of the people's people's men. You can almost picture a political candidate rolling up his sleeves, even though he lives in the richest part of the country, going into Detroit and acting like he's a factory worker, like, I'm just one of you guys. And that's, that's kind of what he's doing. Um, I'm just one of you common Israelis. I'm a people's man. And through the show, through the subversion, and through this sign of affection and humility, um, the text summarizes here in verse 6. It says, Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He stole their loyalties and their allegiance right under David's nose. He is the rising prince of Israel, and he is throwing his dad under the bus. Well, this is going to take place for four years. Four years he, he starts spreading these, um, this kind of conspiracy, this subversion, until finally he sees his chance, and he tells the king or asks the king, David, I made an oath some time ago that I needed to worship the Lord. If he brought me back to Jerusalem, he has. So please let me go to Hebron, which is a a, a town in the south. Let me go there and offer my sacrifices. David says, sure, go ahead. So he goes, and as he goes, we're told that he sends spies and messengers through the land to the men that he has himself subverted, saying basically, listen, when you hear the trumpet blast, 
Y'all need to gather together and you need to say, Absalom is king in Israel. That is, it's the moment of the coup. He's going to take charge. He's going to seize David's throne. This is after four years of this conspiracy. And the conspiracy grows so much. I mean, Absalom is a formidable character. Your um, quintessential secret agenda politician. It says, and the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. So it's mushrooming. There's this, this conspiracy happening. Now, let me just take a, a pause here for a second and ask you a question. Many of you have read the story, and you're already predisposed to judge Absalom as he's the bad guy, David's the good guy. I don't know if you were living in Jerusalem or Israel, you would see it that way, if you were living in the day. Or if you were reading the story for the first time, you've, you've seen how evil David was in committing adultery and um, conspiracy to commit murder and all these things. And my guess is, if that were a democratic society and we were to go to the polls and vote, I'd venture to say most of us in here probably would vote for Absalom. His sins aren't nearly as glaring, and there is a sense in which we would have sympathized with the murder of the one who raped his daughter. And we've already seen that David is compromised in his heart and compromised in justice. Most of us would have said he is completely and utterly um, disqualified from doing this job. We might have voted him in. He's the people's man. And for us, it's not just which is the people's choice, but like which in the unfolding of what happens now, I mean, maybe God is using Absalom to purge, you know? These are the thinkings of probably what we would have done to purge Israel and establish justice again. Which one is God going to back? Which one? They're both sinners. Which one is God going to back? Well, here you have this conspiracy, and David gets wind of it. He hears that there's this massive mushrooming conspiracy against him by his own son. And when he gets word of it, he initiates a massive evacuation of Jerusalem. All of his servants, his family, his wives, his children, his men, his bodyguards, the only thing he leaves behind is a small contingent of 12 um, concubines to take care of the palace. Wouldn't have hated to be one of those 10 concubines left behind to clean the palace. Well, they got left behind. Everybody else went into what we might think of as, as exile. Now, in the chapters that follow um, in this exile, it goes in really slow motion. As David gathers everybody and he heads east out of Jerusalem towards the Jordan. Remember when Moses brought the people in, it was through the Jordan they came into the land. Now David is headed out of the land. He is headed away from home. He's headed away from Jerusalem. And the writer takes time to kind of slowly unfold different stops that he takes along the way as he heads east. uh, At the edge of the city of Jerusalem. And then it tells us that he stopped on the other side of the Kidron Brook, which is like maybe 100 yards from the walls of Jerusalem. Up the ascent of of Mount of Olives, up near the summit, is another stopping place. The summit is a stopping place, and then a city on the other side. So it kind of shows us these snapshots of these stops along the way as David slowly makes his way out of, away from home. And each of those stops is interesting. Like the writer wants us to focus in, and I think for good reason. One of the stops, the first stop, is he gets to the edge of the city and David stops. And he watches 
his servants, and he watches his, his bodyguards, his, his commando troops, his, um, his mighty men pass by him, the Cherethites, the Pelethites, and a man by the name of, and it focuses our attention in on one individual, a man by the name of Ittai, the Gittite. You don't have to remember the name. But Gittite is, like we say Californian for somebody who's from California, a Gittite is someone who's from the town of Gath, a Philistine capital city. In other words, Ittai, the Gittite, is a Philistine man who has, whether he has converted or he said, whatever the explanation, he has aligned himself with Israel and with Yahweh. And David engages in a conversation with this uh, Philistine warrior that's worth noting. David says, you came only yesterday, and that's um, a shorthanded way of saying, you came to our country just a short time ago, not literally yesterday, but you came only yesterday, and shall I make you wander about with us? Uh, Since I I go, I know not where. David doesn't know where he's going. He just knows he needs to get out of Dodge really quick. He tells him, go back and take your brothers with you, because he's leading 600 brothers, 600 Philistines. Like, there's a whole contingent of Philistine troops, the former enemy of Israel, and still the enemy of Israel, who have aligned themselves to David. So he basically tells him to go back, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, these words, as the Lord lives, he swears in the name of Yahweh. As the Lord lives and as the Lord the king lives, whether my Lord the king shall be, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. This is, there's a deep sense of irony and also a token of God's grace in this. The irony is David's own son is rising against him with an entire nation, and who's going to be the guy who swears in the name of Yahweh Loyalty to David, but a Philistine and his men. Like, we're with you. Life or death. And this had to be just a little bit of an encouragement to David. I think it's God's way of saying, listen, your nation may have turned on you, but you're not alone in the fight. If I have to raise up Philistines to come to your aid, like I have, they will. So these men swear allegiance to David. Philistines is God's way of just saying you're not alone in the fight. So that's kind of the first stop. Naturally encouraging. And by the way, Ittai is going to play a major part in the turning point. God's saying, I'm putting the right people into place. The next stop, on the other side of the Kidron Brook. If you go to Israel today, there's like Jerusalem, Little Valley, Mount of Olives. You can see it. It's really easy. We're going, by the way, in 2015. Anybody want to go with us? Um, well, they cross this little brook, Kidron. David, or Jesus later would pray there at the Garden of Gethsemane. And there it stops again. And two priests, the two high priests, Zadok and Abiathar, come. They're, they're bearing the Ark of the Covenant, that sacred piece of furniture that represents the presence of God. Now, Abiathar happens to be some, a priest who's been with David since the days he was running from Saul. These men have a deep, rich history together, naturally loyal friends to David, which is why they're there. And David says to Abiathar and Zadok, he says, listen, take the Ark, go back. And Gather intel, and if you hear something when Absalom rides into town, you, you let me know. They're going to act like spies, which they go back, and they do, because they're loyal to David. But before they go, David says something that gives us an indication as to his psychological um, heart. What's going on in his, his, his heart? He says to them before they leave, If I find favor 
in the eyes of the Lord, in the eyes of Yahweh, um, he will bring me back, he'll bring me home, and let me see both it, that is the ark, and his dwelling place. And if I know anything about David, David loved, David loved being in the dwelling place of God in Jerusalem where God had placed the ark and where he said, this is where my name will dwell. And here he's leaving. But notice he's not certain if he's coming back. He doesn't know the future. With everything that's happened, with all of his bad choices and the cause, effect, sowing and reaping of everything he's done, he's, he's not certain of the future. And, he, and in many ways, he's just like you and me. Whether or not we're in... Um, we find ourselves in adverse situations of our own making, that is, we've made bad choices and, and now we're finding things imploding, or, or whether or not we're the, more of the, um, not the causing party, but somebody else has injured us and we find ourselves, you know, in the midst of devastation and we're not sure, like, where do we go from here? I don't see the future. It's like this blank wall. I don't see the resolution. I don't see the end of the story. I don't know, David says, if I'm coming home. And he certainly lacks, at this point, a sense of confidence that the Lord is going to show favor in that direction. And what do you do in those times? Well, there's only one thing he can do, and it's kind of like you just release yourself to the will of the Lord. If. If the Lord shows favor, he'll bring me back. If not, then I won't come back to see the place of the Lord's dwelling. Well, that's stop two. And those spies, Zadok and Abiathar, are going to play a critical role in the story. He goes further, and he hears some devastating um, news. And the news cuts him to the heart because he writes about the experience in Psalm 41 and 45. And that is his most trusted counselor, his top advisor, the man whose word and strategy and opinion he trusted more than anybody else but the Lord. In fact, It's said of this particular man that his word was treated as if it's the word of God and it was top counselor, a man by the name of Ahithophel. That's a a mouthful to say, Ahithophel. But what David receives news about is that Ahithophel, your, your best advisor, top counselor, most trusted voice, the man who knows you in and out, knows your strategy, knows your armies, knows your track tactics, he's thrown in his lot with your 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 son. He's thrown in the lot with the conspiracy. In other words, your closest confidant has betrayed you. And now he's working for the enemy. He's going to play the part of Judas. That's why David could write so powerfully and passionately and lamentably about understanding firsthand betrayal. His closest friend. Well, from that news, we hear David, for the first time in a long time, pray. He says, oh, Lord, oh, Yahweh. I mean, that's a considerable asset in the hands of the enemy, his best, best advisor. He says, oh, Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. It's not a lengthy prayer. It's not an ornate prayer. It's a desperate prayer. Just, Lord, this man can ruin me. Bring his counsel to Absalom, Prince Absalom, the the showy guy. Bring it to foolishness. And almost without hiccup, the very next stop, he meets an old friend by the name of Hushai. Again, you don't have to remember the name. The sense is that Hushai is an aged man, very wise and very loyal to David. And, 
and, and he's old, too old to go on this travel down into the kind of mountainous desert of Jordan. And so um, David says, listen, if you're going to do me the best um, that, I can, that I need, go back to Jerusalem. Weasel your way up into the ranks of Absalom's cabinet and see if you can't counteract the betrayer's counsel, that is Ahithophel. So he's sending back Hushai to counteract Ahithophel, the betrayer. So he heads back, right? At this point, I'm going to fast forward to the very last person he meets. Again, this is slow motion. He's heading east and he's meeting all of these people who are going to play a key role. Well, he meets this, this foul-mouthed person at the town on the other side of the Mount of Olives, a man by the name of Shimei. And Shimei is angry, and he's foul-mouthed. He begins to curse David, throwing dirt in the air, chucking rocks at him, um, saying things like this, Get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. Now picture the scene. You just have to picture it because it's almost laughable. Here's this one guy who's just constantly cursing and berating David, calling him worthless, you man of blood, hucking rocks at him and his army and his families, throwing dust in the air. And mind you, David is surrounded by his mighty men. Man, is it, is it, is, as a kid, when I read about David's mighty men, I was just like, man, that's just like, that's like the Justice League, all the lighted tight into one, all the best warriors, you know? The pick of the litter, the stacked deck, it's... It's not just having one guy like, wow, Vin Diesel, he's cool. It's like, no, he's got Dwayne The Rock Johnson. He's got Jackie Chan. And he's got Justin Nunes. I mean, who can, who can bring down the armies with those guys, you know? I have to poke fun at Justin because he always does me too. So anyway, he's just got these mighty men around him. And, and, and they're, they're listening to this as their beloved king is pelted with rocks. All David had to do was just, you know, That's all he had to do, and the guy would be ground to dust. And one of his mighty men, by the name of Abishai, who, who's just as, you get the sense that he's impulsive and he's powerful. He's one of David's top four mighty men, took down 300 guys by himself. You just get the sense that he's, yeah. I mean, he's walking alongside David, and he basically says, hey, king, say the word, man. I'll squish this ant, man. Oh, just let me squish this guy. And he actually says, no, let me go take off his head and stop his incessant speaking. And, and David says, no, let him curse. Maybe the curse is from the Lord. Because even though Shimei was wrong about the basis of the curse, there was a sting of truth. You know, a person who's guilty of something, all of a sudden hearing a, a, a curse like you're a man of blood, just probably hit that, that nerve in his heart like, I am guilty. And you get the sense David is lamenting. He's bearing the weight of this just mass of consequences to his sin as he goes. And it says that the whole entourage was weeping, covering their heads. I mean, it's a, it's a lamentable sight. And he's like, no, let him curse. By the time you get to the end of the story, you realize that that curse doesn't hold. But that's the last person he meets before he hits the Jordan where the text tells us that they were all weary, as you can imagine, um, weary, physically weary, emotionally weary. They're done, they're out of gas, and vulnerable. Vulnerable is all get out. So here you have David, who's moved into exile. 
now in the text, we find that there is a switch. The camera angle goes back to Jerusalem where Absalom kind of flies into, into Jerusalem with all of his peacock feathers out. You know, and his chariot and his men, and only now, he's, he's uh, for all practical purposes, he's the appointed king of, of Israel. Not appointed by God, but appointed by the people. And the first thing he does is he needs a plan. And so who does he call? It's not Ghostbusters. It's Ahithophel, David's most trusted counselor. says, Ahithophel, what am I supposed to do at this point? I'm in Jerusalem. I've kind of claimed the throne. I'm in the palace. What do I do now? And he says, here's a two-part plan. Remember, his word is trusted as the word of God. First part of the plan, you need to burn bridges with David completely. And you know what? The best way to do that? Take his ten concubines that he left behind. These are this David's little harem. We're going to pitch a tent up on top of a roof. And all of Israel is going to go see you defile his, his concubines. And that's a way of saying, I've severed the cord. I'm burning the bridges. There's no way back. I'm in this 100%. So he does. Pitch a tent on the roof, which ironically is probably the same roof that David looked down on Bathsheba. And there David's wives were taken from him. Um, a reminder once again that David is reaping what he's sown. He took one man's wife, and Nathan said, someone's going to come along and take yours. In this case, ten. Yeah, reap what you sow. Well, that was plan or part one. Plan two has to do with now he has to bring down, down David. As long as David is alive and his mighty men are alive, there's, there's no chance of him retaining the crown, at least not free from um, possible takeover. And so uh, Ahithophel says, listen, this is my counsel to you as to how to take David down. Give me 12,000 guys right now, right here, right now, we'll leave tonight, and we will surprise them, we'll hit them fast, hard, we'll confuse his mighty men, and then we'll kill David, and they'll, they're, 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 they won't be able to help but come back to you. I mean, that's his plan. Blitzkrieg, let's hit him hard, let's hit him fast, let's hit him now while he's weary by the, by the Jordan River. And that actually is really good advice. I mean, evil advice, but it's good advice as far as bringing down David. Well, in the, um, in the providence of, of God, that guy Hushai, remember the David sent back to weasel his way up to the top? He weaseled his way back to the top. And... Um, and Absalom says, you know what, I want to get a second opinion. So he calls this aged uh, Hushai in. Hushai listens to the counsel that Ahithophel gave, and he goes, you know what? This is my paraphrase. He, at this point, his, his advice is not, not sound, and I'll tell you why. And he appeals to a couple of things. David's prowess, his mighty men, and, um, and the vanity of Absalom says, you know your father. Your father himself is a mighty man. He's not surprised easily. Um, He is a military genius, and he has his mighty men with him. Like, what are you thinking? He's used to being surprised. He's not going to be surprised. You don't want to take on your dad ill-equipped. That's part one of his advice. And and then part two, he says, I'll I'll tell you what you should do. Instead of running down there with 12,000 guys and getting slaughtered, I I think you should take a little bit more, more time and you should gather every possible soldier in Israel. And let's just amass this massive army. Yes, it'll go a little bit slower, but we'll head down there. And we will descend on him, and this is a quote from the text, like dew on the earth. 
and Absalom, you will be at the helm. The previous advice didn't have Absalom taking part, just sending Ahithophel. This one, this wise person says, you at the helm of this massive army descending upon your father, David, bringing him down. Well, that appealed to his vanity. And these two words of counsel, this vain young prince decides he'd go against the man whose word was as if it was the word of God, and he took David's loyal friend Hushai's advice. And we're told behind this advice whose hand is behind it. And you've got to love the, the, the scripture when, you know, you're seeing all of these earthly details play out, and then it's like they pull apart the veil, and you get to see whose hands are working this. Because there's this very important statement in verse 14 of chapter 7. It says, For the Lord, Yahweh, had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Like the Lord is behind this. You see, the Lord is working all these things out, and this is the turning point. Now, Ahithophel, when he hears that his advice is not taken, you know what he does? He gets on his little mule, and he goes back to his house, puts things in order. He takes a rope, and he hangs himself, just like Judas did. Probably because he saw the handwriting on the wall. He knew David enough that, that, you know what, this is disastrous. Absalom's going to walk in. He's going to get his lunch handed to him. And so he commits suicide. There's no future for him in the cabinet of David's regime or his government. It's done for him. So he commits suicide. Now here, the hand of the Lord is working, and, and he amasses this army, and this allows time for David. David hears, okay, this is the plan. Move a little slower. Got a little time. We're completely weary and devastated down here. And so he moves up into a town called Machanaim on the, on the eastern side of Jordan. And there we read that more friends come to him. Verse 27, it's worth reading. When David came to Mahanaim Shabi, the son of Nahash from Rabbah of the Ammonites, and Machir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar. I mean, he has people come from, a guy come from the Ammonites, a foreign nation, and uh, Machir happens to be the guy, if you remember, who, who took care of Mephibosheth. He's a very compassionate, giving man, one of the grandsons of Saul. And then a third guy by the name of Barzillai, the Gileadite from Rogalim. And they brought, listen to what they bring. They brought beds and basins and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans and lentils, honey and curds and sheep and cheese from the herd for David and the people with him to eat. For they said the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. And you see what's going on here. God is, from the very first step, he's out of Jerusalem. He's received word from a guy who's going to play a part in the battle. um, He has spies, devoted, loyal spies, priests, who go back and give him intel that he needs. That's the only way he receives word, is these priests are doing their duty. You know, he has this Hushai guy that God puts in place, and then he uses him to overturn the powerful counsel of Ahithophel. And here, they're weary and they're thirsty out in the middle of the, the desert. And what does God do? that's a pretty dang big list. You know, beds and basins and curds and sheep and cheese. And so while Absalom's taking his time to bring this mighty army together, what's David doing? He's fueling up. And by the time Absalom brings his armies down to the Jordan, David and his men are ready. That's a sense. Um, Which leads to one of the final steps in this, and that is the war. 
Now, there's not a lot said about the war. I would have loved it if there would have been, you know, just, just brilliant descriptions of battles between David's mighty men and taking down thousands, you know, just heroics and all that. But it, that, that's not how it works out. David divides his men into three. He puts thousands under his general Joab. He puts other thousands under his general Abishai, the guy who wanted to take the guy's head off. And then the third general, the Philistine, by the name of Atai. Amazing. Uh, This Philistine who swore allegiance to David in the name of Yahweh. These are his generals. And they move off into battle. David stays behind. His only word of encouragement to the men or instruction is, just don't kill my son. Which Joab is going to say, that ain't going to happen. So David's men move out. You can picture it. Absalom's men move towards David's. And if I was part of Absalom's crew, even if I was part of a massive army, I still would have been thinking, I'm not sure I want to do this. I mean, he's got Jackie Chan, and he's got, I mean, just think of all these guys. And David really doesn't lose. Do I really want to do this? So naturally, they would have walked into battle with a sense of fear and trepidation. And the text tells us that Absalom's armies were defeated by David's men. And they pursued Absalom's men up into the forests of Ephraim, where 20,000 men die. And the son, the conspirator, Absalom, it says that he was riding through the forest. He hit this place, and if you remember, he has this nice, long, flowing, beautiful, beautiful um, suave hair. It gets tangled up in, in tree branches. His mule keeps going, and there he is, suspended. The text says suspended between heaven and earth. Helpless, hanging there, unable to get himself untangled. It's not by accident that he was stricken immobile by his vanity, his hair. And there he hangs. Joab, who has a colorful history. Sometimes you hate him, sometimes you love him. This time, he finds out where Absalom's hanging by his hair. And he comes, and you get the sense he was pretty doggone mad. And he shoves spear, not one, two, three spears into his heart, just making sure he dies. And then allowing his ten armor bearers to go ahead and finish whatever isn't done. That's how, the, that's how the battle ends, is with a man dead, suspended between heaven and earth. And, and when I read that, I thought, you know, this, according to Moses, was a sign of curse, right? Cursed is every man who dies and hangs on a tree exposed to the elements. It's blessed to be, to be buried in the ground. It's cursed to hang um, from a tree, which I don't think is by accident that that's how this man died, a sign that the curse fell on him. He was the one who was cursed. David was forgiven. His son Absalom cursed. And therein ends the war. That pretty much brings it to a close. And the rest of the story is David's return home. You know, the people of Judah go out who once were against him. They were with Absalom. They went out and they said, will you come back? And David forgives them. And then the people of Israel, you know, through some adversity and disagreements, they finally come and they say, will you be our king too? Even Shemai, the guy who was throwing dirt in the air, he comes and says, I was wrong, and bows down. And David forgives him too. He forgives almost everybody all the way back. But the point is that God brought him back to Jerusalem. He brought David home. Now, that's the story of his going and coming. 
Now, let me sew it up for us. What in the world does that say to you and me? And I've hinted at it through the story. Obviously, one of the points which was made last week, which needs to be made again, is this continues to show the exponential consequences or effects of a man's sin. As mentioned last week, just summed up, it's just simply the fact that we indeed do reap what we sow, even if we're forgiven. David's life is a massive case study, an example, a proof, that don't think that it's just one thing. One thing leads to a multiplicity of other things. I mean, from him to the death of a son to the civil war in his own nation, 20,000 men died. Just a warning for all of us in here um, that we need to continue to take to heart, which is one of the reasons I think the writer spent so much time on the consequences of David's sin. But another piece, and this is the encouraging part of it, is, is David's example in this. You might say, what's David's example? I mean, he's, he, he's, he's, he's blundering. He makes um, hasty decisions. When he hears of Absalom's death, he just, he's flooded with emotion. He doesn't have the self-control to hold himself together. He actually puts his troops into a place where they walk back to the city with his tail tucked between their legs and, and ashamed because David is so grief-stricken over the death of his son that he doesn't even acknowledge his men. I mean, he makes these monumental little foibles and failures and lack of judgment and so forth, and yet amidst his failure and amidst the consequences, the weeping and the lamenting, we still find him enduring in his faith. He still endures in his faith amidst the the, the discipline and also the failures. And that's huge. We've heard him pray, Lord, confuse the counsel of, of Ahithophel. You read those psalms which he wrote in this time period, Psalm 41, Psalm 3, and Psalm 55, and you find the whole time that he's going about stumbling and and lamenting, and under the weight of this, he's still praying, Psalm 3, verse 7. He's still praying, Arise, O Yahweh, and save me, O my God. That he's still praying in Psalm 55, I call to God, and the Lord will save me. Like he's, 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 think of it, he, he doesn't have anything really left to stand on. The only thing he can do is trust the Lord. That's all he has. In particular, to trust in his steadfast love or to trust in his, his grace. Now, I don't know how you take the story, but the story kind of aggravates me a little bit in the sense that if you were to take... Absalom's sins, his actual sins, not of the heart, but sins of life, and compare them to David's sins, who precipitated Absalom's sins, compounding and making it worse. Like, by our judgment, who deserves greater judgment? I think a good case could be argued that David sinned way more in terms of action than his son. So why does... He get forgiven. Why is God behind this guy but not Absalom? Like these scales don't work. The scales say that David should have been hanging on a tree under a curse. But that goes to show that, that God is not weighing his decision based upon the actions, either good or evil, of these two men. 
which is kind of why it aggravates us. But when it comes right down to it, the difference between Absalom and his sin and David and his is that David continued to trust in the Lord. It just reiterates the central truth of the Bible and the Christian life, that a man is saved by grace alone through his faith alone. That's it! He, can't, he doesn't have any moral standing, any moral merit to say, God, I did this for you back then. He's like, just doesn't do that. Everything in him says, according to your mercy, O oh Lord, and your steadfast love, forgive and save. He's casting himself wholly and completely upon the grace of God. That's all you have. And that's all any of us have. Our favor from the Lord does not come from anything that we do. It comes from the fact that I trust that God himself is gracious. God will supply. God will take care of me. And God would. I mean, God would provide another man hanging from a tree, cursed. Only it wouldn't be Absalom. It would be Jesus, who was perfect, so that David could go free. So I'll tell you, no matter how dark it gets, you know, in life, whether or not your, your adversity is caused by bad decisions that you made or whatever, and you find yourself, I don't know where we're going from here on out. There's only one thing you can do, and that is just endure in your faith. God continues to look with favor upon those who trust in him and be with them, regardless of how far you've fallen, regardless of whether you know the future or not. Even when it's dark, even when you're in the desert, you still just trust the Lord. You know, there's, there's a lot of weak-hearted people who confess the name of Jesus these days. Not like Jesus didn't give me the, the, the career that I wanted, and I'm, I'm devastated by that and can't have children. That's really hard, too, not to make light of either of those things. But then cash in the chips and say, well, God doesn't love me and leave. Tell you what, man, if I did my summing right, David has been going through the dark valley of the consequences of his sin for over 10 years. And he still believes. Let that be an example to everyone here. You don't give up on hope in the Lord at all, at any time. Just, Lord, even if, even if you slay me, Job said, I'll still trust in you. That's faith, enduring and continuing to hold even in the darkness. But then the last piece, and this is the also why he's worthy. The Lord is worthy of trusting in and enduring faith. is because God's grace endures toward those of humble faith. In the minutia and in the macro grace salvation. If you, again, reading the Pieces of the story as it's unfolded. What has the Lord done as David has, has marched the march of lament out from home? Well, the Lord brought him a Philistine warrior, said, I'm yours. He brought him spies to say, we will report to you. He brought a counselor that would go back and confuse by the hand of God, the counsel of Ahithophel. He would bring friends in Mahanaim to bring him beds and sheep and cheese. That is, you see that the Lord is providing all the way along. Your journey is David's journey. It's a, it's a complex one. A lot of turns, a lot of curves, a lot of disappointments, a lot of adversities, a lot of wrong turns and U-turns and cul-de-sacs. And, and yet, amazingly enough, all the way along, the Lord is like, I'm providing for you. 
I'm providing for you here, and here, and here. And sometimes we're, we forget that. We, we're, we just think that God's grace does the big things. Like, yeah, I know you'll save me from hell, but right now I need, I need to pay my rent. And just to realize that the Lord meets us in those moments to provide what we need. It's, he is there. He never... Um, not only gives up, he just continues to be there to supply what's needed in the journey. And then ultimately, he promises to bring those who trust him, endure in their faith, which is the mark of true faith that endures. If it doesn't endure, it's not real. Is that he promises, and I will, I will bring you back home. I mean, that was what he did with they brought him back home. And this story must have resounded in the ears of the Israelites 400 years later who found themselves in Babylon wondering, did the Lord leave us out here for nothing? Oh, remember what he did with David? Oh, yeah, the Lord was always with them, always um, providing what's necessary, and he promised and he brought him back home. And for God's people to know that time in and time out and day in, day out, just the Lord really in this journey of life as he provides for me and as we trust in him day by day as, as family and as individuals that... I trust that the Lord is going to finally and fully, he's going to bring you and me home to every sense of what that word truly means. In his presence, free from the conflicts of sin and death, to be with family that love him and he loves forever and ever, and that's what we're living for. He says, I will. I'll bring you home. You just trust in me in a journey. So are you trusting him in the journey? Are you trusting him that he will bring you home? And are you seeing that his hands never leave his people, even though they're out in the desert or out in the wilderness and they feel far from him? He never leaves those who trust in him. And that, of course, is, is what all of us are called to do, endure in faith because God's grace endures towards us and will bring us home. I pray that in some way, shape, or form, maybe this connects with where you're at. And you'll hear the Spirit of the Lord speaking to you. Trust. Trust in the Lord who's always there in the small and in the great. And someone who says, on this journey, I will bring you home. Will you just spend a moment just um, lifting up your path to the Lord? Saying, Lord, I want to believe this and I want to trust this and I want to look to you. I want to trust you in the moments of life and also to bring me home. Just, Just spend a a moment with your father and um, surrendering your path to him in faith.